0: This is Democracy Now! I'm gonna fight the global war
1: on terror. I'm going after bad people, evil people. When I get a chance to stamp out evil in this world, I love that. Sorry, I love hunting down bad guys and ending them.
0: American mercenaries hired by the United Arab Emirates to kill in Yemen. An investigative report by the BBC reveals new details of an assassination program. But first, as the U.S. launches new airstrikes in Yemen, we take a look at the Houthis and their support for Palestine. Then, on this first day of Black History Month, how racism shapes healthcare in America.
2: There's nothing inherently or biologically wrong with black people, but there is something very, very wrong with the systems in this country that cause us harm and lead us to live shortened lives.
0: We'll speak with Dr. Uche Blackstock about her new book, Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Palestinian officials are accusing Israeli forces of carrying out execution-style killings in Gaza after the discovery of a mass grave containing at least 30 decomposing bodies. Some of the victims were blindfolded with their hands tied behind their backs with zip ties. The bodies were found on the grounds of a school in Beit Lahia. Al Jazeera spoke to one man who helped discover the
2: bodies. Inside the schoolyard. We were shocked to find the dead bodies. Those are Palestinian civilians, blindfolded and handcuffed at the back. The dead bodies were kept inside black plastic bags.
0: The discovery of the mass grave comes as the death toll in Gaza has topped. 27,000. At least another 66,000 people have been injured. The group Euromed Human Rights Monitor is now estimating more than 25,000 Palestinian children have lost one or both parents in Gaza over the last four months. In central Gaza, the two largest hospitals in Khan Yunis have run out of food amidst Israel's assault on the city. Dr. Nassim Hassan, the head of the emergency unit at Nasser Hospital, denounced Israel's
3: attacks on medical institutions.
0: We are talking about war and genocide against everyone. What's happening now in Gaza since the beginning of the war until now is a war against hospitals, a war against the healthcare system. Yes, hospitals have been destroyed, medical storehouses as well. Many ambulance vehicles were destroyed. Many EMS officers were martyred. There have been direct and indirect targeting of paramedics. On the diplomatic front, Hamas's political leader Ismail Haniyeh is reportedly in Cairo today as negotiations continue over a possible pause in the fighting and a new hostage deal. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's also headed back to Israel in the coming days. In more news on Gaza, South Africa's foreign minister, Naledi Pandor has called on all nations to halt military support to Israel after the International Court of Justice ordered Israel last week to prevent genocide in Gaza. Pandor spoke in Pretoria, South Africa.
4: This necessarily imposes an obligation on all states to seize funding and facilitating Israel's military actions, which, as the court has indicated, are plausibly genocidal. In
0: related news, a U.S. federal court has dismissed a lawsuit filed by a group of Palestinian-Americans against President Biden and other officials for failing to prevent genocide in Gaza. The court dismissed the suit on jurisdictional grounds, but ruled it's plausible Israel's engaging in genocide. In its ruling, the court wrote, The evidence and testimony presented, quote, indicate the ongoing military siege in Gaza is intended to eradicate a whole people and therefore plausibly falls within the international prohibition against genocide, unquote. The lawsuit had been brought by the Center for Constitutional Rights. Visit democracynow.org to see our coverage of the case. U.S. forces have bombed Yemen again. U.S. Central Command said the attack targeted 10 Houthi drones in a ground control center. The Houthis have vowed to continue targeting ships linked to Israel and the United States until Israel halts its assault on Gaza. Meanwhile, NBC News is reporting President Biden's considering launching a weeks-long retaliatory campaign against Iran-backed militant groups following Sunday's deadly drone strike on a secret U.S. airbase in Jordan that killed three U.S. soldiers. On Wednesday, the head of Iran's Revolutionary Guard said Tehran was, quote, not looking for war. Unquote. One powerful Iraq-based militia group, Kataib Hezbollah, has announced it will halt operations targeting the United States and the region, saying it wanted to prevent embarrassment to the Iraqi government. The Biden administration accused the group of being involved in the Jordan drone attack. The Chicago City Council narrowly voted Wednesday to pass a resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. Democratic Mayor Brandon Johnson cast the tie-breaking vote, which was met with an eruption of cheers from activists who gathered in hundreds at Chicago City Hall to support the measure. Reverend Jesse Jackson was also present to show his support. At least 47 U.S. cities have passed resolutions calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. Meanwhile, in Minneapolis, another Democratic mayor. Jacob Fry vetoed a city council resolution calling for a ceasefire that was passed last week. Fry said the measure was too one-sided in favor of Palestinians and that he's open to signing a ceasefire resolution that's more, quote, unquote, unifying. The resolution was passed with a veto-proof majority, so council members could still decide to override the mayor's veto. Protests against the U.S.-funded war in Gaza continue across the United States. Activists have been camped outside the Virginia home of Secretary of State Antony Blinken for a week, loudly chanting slogans through megaphones like Secretary of Genocide and encouraging passing cars to honk. On Capitol Hill, five activists with Code Pink were arrested earlier this week as the group disrupted a House hearing on the U.S.'s decision to suspend funding for UNRWA. The UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees. Yesterday, members of the Arab American community in Dearborn, Michigan gathered to protest against President Biden ahead of his visit today to the key swing state and just weeks ahead of Michigan's February 27th presidential primary.
5: I voted for Bernie Sanders, which tells you where I was on the spectrum. And to have a person like me to go from that extreme to say that I'm now willing to vote for Trump in order to oust genocide, Joe, it's really a testament to how Biden has lost um, big time within my community.
0: Kenyan President William Ruto is vowing to proceed with a plan to send 1,000 Kenyan police officers to Haiti, despite a court ruling that the deployment would be unconstitutional. The U.N. Security Council approved the mission last year as part of an effort to help combat gang violence, which has grown under Haiti's unelected leader, the U.S.-backed Ariel Henry, who has ruled since the 2021 assassination of Jovenel Moïse. Meanwhile, the U.N. and aid groups are warning about a surge in sexual assaults and collective rapes in Haiti as gangs fight to expand their power. On Wednesday, protesters in Port-au-Prince burned barricades to protest Prime Minister Ariel Henry's rule.
4: The people can't take it anymore because Ariel Henry is building gangs to plunder and destroy these people. Well, today we say that the battle for the revolution is possible. The final fight for justice is possible. We must disrupt this Ariel with all his team to give this country another direction.
0: In Belgium, farmers from across Europe have converged in the capital of Brussels, calling on European Union leaders to end free trade agreements that allow cheaper goods to dominate the market and ease environmental regulations. Hundreds of tractors have taken over Luxembourg Square near the European Parliament. Farmers clash with police who hose some of the protesters with water. This is an Italian farmer.
4: First of all we decide to come here to join with other kind of European young farmers to create a unique voice not against but with the cooperation of the European Parliament and the other kind of politics because we'd like to safeguard our tradition, our farmers' mood, our quality of food, but to safeguard the majority part of this kind of situation
3: the dignified a dignified incomes.
0: The farmer protests, which started in France but soon spread across the EU, have disrupted traffic and led to confrontations with police in recent weeks and rising tensions ahead of today's EU summit. Some far-right nationalist leaders have seized on the movement to gain traction and foment anti-EU sentiment, including France's Marine Le Pen and the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orbán, who met with farmers in Brussels earlier today. A sweeping new government study finds contaminated water at the Camp Lejeune military base in North Carolina led to elevated cancer rates among people who lived and worked at Lejeune decades ago. Previous studies linked the drinking water at the base to blood and organ cancers and Parkinson's disease. Victims of the contamination which plagued Camp Lejeune from at least 1953 to 1987 have for years been fighting for compensation and recognition from the U.S government. The new findings are likely to boost their legal claims, which they have until August to file under a new federal law. Over 160,000 claims have been filed so far. On Capitol Hill, senators on the Judiciary Committee grilled the CEOs of Meta, TikTok, X, Snapchat, and Discord Wednesday, arguing social media companies must be held accountable for the sexual exploitation of children that their apps facilitate and the harmful effects of their products on the mental health of young people. This is Republican Senator Lindsey Graham addressing Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg.
1: You and the companies before us, I know you don't mean to it to be so, but you have blood on your hands. You have a product, you have a product that's killing people. When we had cigarettes
5: killing people, we did some about it, maybe not enough. You're going to talk about guns, we have the
0: ATF. Nothing here. There's not a damn thing anybody can do about it. You can't be sued. In one of the session's most sensational moments, Mark Zuckerberg stood up and awkwardly apologized to the families who were present at the hearing after being pressured by Republican Senator Josh Hawley.
4: I'm sorry for everything that you have all gone through. It's terrible. No one should have to go through the things that your families have have suffered. And this is why we invest so much and are going to continue doing industry-leading efforts to, uh, to make sure that... No one has to go through the types of things that your families have had to suffer.
0: Many families held up photos of their children who died or were harmed by social media. Snapchat CEO Evan Spiegel also directly apologized to families after prompting from California Democrat LaFonza Butler. Meanwhile, Republican Senator Tom Cotton hounded TikTok CEO Shuzi Chu, who is Singaporean, over his citizenship and ties to the Chinese government.
6: Have you ever been a member of the Chinese Communist Party? Senator, I'm Singaporean. No. Have you ever been associated or affiliated with the Chinese Communist Party? No, Senator. Again, okay. I'm Singaporean.
0: Senator Cotton and Republican colleagues have called for TikTok to be banned, claiming it's a spy app for the Chinese Communist Party, unquote. Elsewhere on Capitol Hill, the House Wednesday passed a $78 billion bill that would expand the child tax credit while reviving some corporate tax breaks. While held as a bipartisan victory by centrist lawmakers, around two dozen Democrats voted against it. Progressive Congress member from Texas Greg Kassar was one of them, arguing, quote, in exchange for a partial return of the child tax credit, Republicans got hundreds of billions of dollars in corporate tax cuts for every dollar going to kids in this bill. Five dollars goes to corporations. We have the money to pull every child in America out of poverty. We just need to say no to accepting crumbs while corporations get a full steak dinner, Kassar said. A Delaware judge has voided the $56 billion compensation package of Tesla CEO Elon Musk. The judge noted the astronomical 2018 pay package was the largest ever in public corporate history and that Tesla's board failed to prove the compensation plan was fair. And in more related news, Senator Bernie Sanders and Democratic lawmakers are pushing a union-backed bill that would raise taxes on companies where CEOs make more than 50 times above the salary of an average worker. The measure could raise $150 billion in revenue over a decade. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Kutman.
5: And I'm Nermeen Sheikh. Welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. The U.S. military carried out new airstrikes in Yemen today, targeting 10 drones and a ground control station that it said, quote, presented an imminent threat to merchant vessels and U.S. Navy ships in the region. The airstrikes are the latest targeting the Houthis. The group, also known as Ansar Allah, has waged a campaign of attacks on commercial ships in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden since November 19th in response to Israel's assault on Gaza. On Tuesday, U.S. Central Command said its forces shot down an anti-ship cruise missile. According to CNN, the missile came within a mile of a U.S. destroyer before it was shot down, marking the closest a Houthi attack has come to a U.S. warship. Meanwhile, the Houthis said they would stage more attacks on U.S. and British warships in the Red Sea in what they called acts of self-defense. This is Houthi military spokesperson Yahya Saria on Wednesday.
4: The Yemeni armed forces will confront the American-British escalation with escalation and will not hesitate to carry out comprehensive and effective military operations and retaliation to any British-American foolishness against beloved Yemen.
0: The Houthi campaign targeting shipping has affected a key route for global trade between Asia, the Middle East and Europe, with several shipping companies suspending transit through the Red Sea. On Thursday, Italy's defense minister warned the shipping disruptions threatened to destabilize Italy's economy. This comes as the European Union's foreign minister, Josep Borrell, said on Wednesday the EU plans to launch a naval mission of its own within three weeks to help defend cargo ships in the Red Sea. For more, we're joined by Helen Lackner, the author of several books on Yemen, including Yemen in Crisis, The Road to War, and Yemen, Poverty and Conflict. She's been involved with Yemen for over half a century, lived there for a total of more than 15 years between the 70s and the 2010s. She's joining us from Oxford, England. Helen Lackner, welcome to Democracy Now! Can you tell us who the Houthis are and explain what their demands are, the significance of what What's happening in the Red Sea?
4: Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, Yes, I think I'll start with the second half of your question, which relates directly to what has been happening and the various announcements you've just made. And the Houthis have been extremely explicit and repeat on an almost daily basis that their attacks on ships in the Red Sea will stop as soon as the Gaza war ends and humanitarian and other supplies are allowed into Gaza and therefore the Palestinians will no longer be under the threat and the horrors that you've earlier described and that most of us have seen on our screens for many, many weeks. So the important thing is that although the US and the UK claim that they're only defending free movement in the Red Sea and refuse to, to accept any connection between this and the war in Gaza, For the Houthis, it's absolutely straightforward and explicit that, number one, they're only targeting ships that have any connection with Israel, whether they're going to Israel, coming from Israel, delivering stuff owned by Israelis or whatever, any connection, whatever, and that other ships are not targeted, except, of course, now, since the US and UK strikes have started, they are also targeting uh, US and UK ships. So they're absolutely explicit that all other ships are welcome to travel through the Red Sea and that there is, you know, there is complete freedom of movement for any ship other than an Israeli or UK or US connected one. And I think that's extremely important. And the reason the Houthis have taken this action in support of Palestine is that one of the very fundamental Policy issues or ideological positions that the Houthis have is the support for Palestine and more directly being anti Israelis. The Houthis are, the Houthis foreign policy is quite clearly summarized in their basic slogan of death to America and death to Israel. They are, they are absolutely, you know, their positions are absolutely straightforward on these points. So although they are, well, not, you know, they are willing to allow other ships through, they are actually, up to a certain point, not displeased at the fact that the Americans and the U.S. are now actually targeting their uh, various launch positions. So, Helen, could you give
5: us some uh, background, though? What are the origins of this movement? And how is it that they came to play such a prominent role in Yemen?
4: Yeah. So the Houthi movement started in the 1980s, 1990s. I think what you need to understand is that in terms of religious sects, Yemen is divided into two basic sects. The a, a Sunni sect of, or called of Shafi's, who basically live in the majority of the country and a branch of Shiism called the Zaydis, who live basically in the mountainous highlands of Yemen. And the Houthis are uh, Zaydis. And they, in that sense, and they are, and again, within the Zaydi movement, there's a certain variety in the sense that the Houthis, I would say, are extremist Zaydists. And they are, they've developed their ideology and their policies to strengthen their own branch of Zaydism. And they basically emerged in response to the rise of Sunni Salafi fundamentalism within their own area in the far north of Yemen. And so there have been com- conflicts and, and problems you know, arising since the 1990s. Between 2004 and 2010, there was a series of six wars between the Houthis facing and fighting the then regime of President Ali Abdullah Saleh. And uh, this ended basically, each one ended with a ceasefire, which was promptly broken. The reason the last one in 2010 was not broken as, as a result of the uprisings in 2011 of the, you know, known as the Arab Spring in various places. And uh, that was a moment when the Houthis joined with the revolutionaries and basically Took a position against where, you know, they continued their position against the regime. So they then were for during the, what was a transition, supposedly a transition period between the Saleh regime and what should have become a more democratic regime in 2014. The Houthis then changed their alliances and indeed Saleh changed his alliance. So they operated together uh, against the transitional government and as a and then eventually that allowed them to take over the capital Sanaa, in twenty fourteen and then to oust the existing um transitional government in early 2015. And that's when really the the war started, which was then internationalized for March 2015, with the intervention of what was known as the Saudi-led coalition, which was basically a coalition led by the Saudis and the Emiratis with a few other states with minor roles, but supported actively by the US, the Europeans and the British and others.
5: And what was the point at which, sorry, just to clarify, what was the point at which the Iranians uh, uh, started backing the Houthis? Was it in the moment uh, when uh, the uh, Saudi-led bombing began in uh, 2015, or was it prior to that? And if you could also clarify the distinction between, as you said, the Yemenis are uh, Zaydi Shias. And to what extent Zaydis are ideologically or theologically aligned uh, with the dominant form of, of Shiism in Iran, and what that has to yeah. do with Iran's uh, uh, complicity or support for Houthis, whether or not now they they do as as Iran says.
4: Yeah, thank you for these for bringing up these points. The Iranian role at the time. In 2015, when we're in the internationalized civil war, started was minimal. The Iranian involvement with the Houthis, and prior to that, and since then, has always been connected with uh, partly theological connections, but differences. So in that sense, the Houthis are differentiating themselves from other Zaydis by having adopted a number of the rituals and activities and approaches of the Iranian uh, Twelvers. It's all a matter of how many imams they trust or they believe in after after the Prophet Muhammad. But in practice, uh, the Houthis are getting closer to the Iranians uh, to the Iranian shiism over the last decades. But they are still sorry the last decade. But they are still you know quite distinct. So the alliance is much more a political alliance. And the Iranian involvement, which was really very, very insignificant at the beginning of this war, has increased over time and and is primarily, you know, has been uh, for a while mainly financial and uh, providing fuel and things like that to the Houthis, but more recently has been much more focused on military activities and primarily on the supply of advanced technology. Uh, If you look at the Houthi weaponry, And I'm no military expert, but the Houthi weaponry originally was basically a lot of uh, scuds and other Russian-supplied materials and also some American-supplied materials to the Saleh regime. And these have been upgraded and improved and changed to some extent thanks to, um, to, to Iranian support. So in that sense, you have more... The Iranian involvement has become greater. But it's very important to note that the Houthis are an independent movement. The Houthis are not Iranian proxies. They are not Iranian servants. They don't do what the Iranians tell them to do. They make their own decisions. If their decisions and their policies can coincide with those of Iran, then, you know, there's no issue. But if they don't, they don't do it. So it's very important, I think, to destroy this myth of, you know, Iran backed Houthis in a single word as if um, it's kind of a conglomerate. That
0: is not the case. Helen, I hope that's briefly answered your point. Yes. And we don't have much time, but I did want to ask you about the Houthi support in Yemen, whether it's increased and the Houthi human rights record. Yeah, great. Well, yeah, as you said, we haven't got much time. Basically, the Houthi,
4: the support for the Houthis in Yemen has increased, has multiplied. I can't even imagine, find a suitable terminology to say it. The Houthis, you know, who run an extremely authoritarian and autocratic regime, which is not a pleasant regime for people to live under, you know, and we're lacking support. And you have to remember that the Houthis actually rule and run the lives of two thirds of the population of Yemen. So two, you know, about 20 million people live under Houthi rule. And it's not a pleasant place to be. There's no freedom of expression. You know, women are oppressed. All kinds of negative features connected with Houthi rule. But the Yemeni population are extremely supportive of Palestine, and therefore this action of the Houthis has, you know, Really, really increased their support. If you take a look and you maybe show on your screen some of the demonstrations that happen every Friday, you know, in Sana'a and in other cities, they've become absolutely massive because all the people may not like living under Houthi rule. They agree with the Houthi actions in support of Palestine. And so that has increased and improved their popularity an enormous amount, not only in the area they rule, but also in the rest of Yemen, which is, you know, not ruled by them.
0: Helen Lachner, we want to thank you so much for being with us, Uh, author of a number of books on Yemen, including Yemen in Crisis, The Road to War, and Yemen, Poverty and Conflict. She's been involved with Yemen for over 50 years, has lived there for uh, about 15. Coming up, an investigative report by the BBC reveals new details of how American mercenaries were hired by the United Arab Emirates to run an assassination campaign in Yemen, back in sixty seconds. I'm
5: scared
7: of dying. You're scared of am scared
4: is
0: like America and America likes me by the 1975. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. We turn now to another story out of Yemen. An investigative report by the BBC
5: has revealed new details about how the United Arab Emirates hired American mercenaries to carry out more than 100 assassinations over a three-year period beginning in 2015. Targets included politicians, imams, and members of civil society. The assassinations took place in southern Yemen, in areas under the control of the internationally recognized government and were traced to members of a private U.S. security company called Spear Operations Group. Before we speak with the BBC reporter who worked on the investigation, let's go to a clip from her report that includes the first on-camera interviews with U.S. mercenaries hired by the UAE for targeted killings in Yemen.
1: I'm going to fight the global war on terror. I'm going after bad people, evil people. When I get a chance to stamp out evil in this world, I love that. Sorry, I love hunting down bad guys and ending them. Driving from the base down into a city is actually incredibly beautiful. There's this weird mix of excitement, and fear, and also an odd serenity. We wanted to make a statement, hence the choice to use a detonator in a bomb. I was actually surprised how dark it was. There were no lights. The roads were very tight and congested. You had people sitting on the street drinking chai. You had al-Qaeda on every street corner. As soon as the vehicle stops, the doors open, and It's showtime. We already started taking fire. There's people running. You can see the bullets bouncing off everything. Everybody deployed. I ran around the back, and that was it.
3: Would you say that it was a successful operation?
0: Yes. The U.S. military launched another airstrike in Yemen.
3: The U.S. and U.K.
6: hit around 30 sites across Yemen. This film is about the complex roles Western and regional powers have played in Yemen's war. And the story begins with an
3: assassination mission. Welcome. So that's your mic, are you okay with putting it on? I'm sure I can manage. Okay. I first met Isaac
6: Gilmore in 2020. He's a former Navy SEAL who later became second in command of a private US military firm called Spear Operations Group.
1: Yeah, me too. I want to be pretty.
6: I was surprised Isaac agreed to speak to me because at the time, human rights lawyers were trying to prosecute Spear for war crimes. When
1: you make the choice to be involved in things that matter, you're not going to please everybody. There's plenty of people that would be happy to say that I was on the wrong side of something. One of the reasons that I agreed to participate in this and be part of this documentary is to be very clear about what we're doing and why. This isn't, you know, innocent until proven guilty. It's war. And so you have intelligence, and then you make a decision to act on it.
0: An excerpt of the BBC investigative report on American mercenaries hired by the UAE to conduct assassinations in Yemen. We're joined now by the Yemeni-British journalist who conducted the investigation, Nawal al-Marafi. She is a BBC Newsnight international correspondent and filmmaker. She has been reporting on the Middle East since 2012, joining us today from Amman, Jordan. Uh, Nawal, thank you so much for being with us. This is such an important investigation. Uh, Why don't you lay out what you found?
3: So basically, my investigation started at around 2015, really. I was in Yemen reporting from southern Yemen on the war that was going on there, on the humanitarian situation. But at the same time, I was hearing about these assassinations that were going on in southern Yemen. But no one knew who was responsible. Um, and as the years went on, I kept hearing about these assassinations that were going on. There were rumored to be connected to um, you know, groups, affiliated to the UAE, but no one could prove it. It wasn't until a Buzzfeed article came out at around 2018 uh, that speaks about Spear Operations Group that we, you know, we knew where to start. Basically, um, so I reached out to Spear Operations Group to their leader Abraham Golan, to all the members, all the different mercenaries that worked for him, um, and surprisingly, some of them actually got back to me and. And that's that was our starting point. And from then on, uh, it was a four-year investigation. It started by speaking to these mercenaries, talking about the op- operations that they were a part of, uh, and then speaking to victims on the ground, speaking to people who were trained by Emiratis uh, in Yemen. Um, and so what we ended up fighting, finding was not only that Spear had conducted some assassinations, they trained Emirati soldiers who then trained yemenis and what we've seen is a systematic targeting campaign of like you said political activists uh, members of al-isla civil society members uh, and yeah it's just created a climate of fear in southern yemen
5: so let's go to another clip from your documentary Uh, this is from your interview with ansaf mayo a yemeni member of parliament Uh, who's the leader of Isla, uh, who was one of the people, the mercenaries you spoke to, uh, tried to assassinate.
7: I left the office half an hour earlier than usual, around 9.40 p.m. I arrived home and I heard an explosion. I heard an explosion. Moments later, some MPs called me They asked if I was okay I didn't understand I told them I was fine It turned out a statement had come out online It said I'd been killed by a car bomb that's how I found out I was the target. I hadn't realized until then.
6: How did you feel when you found
7: out? I felt afraid for my family.
6: Three years later, when the UAE's drone footage was leaked to the international media, Ansar found out that Speer had been hired to kill him.
7: What shocked me the most is that they'd sent foreign mercenaries to kill us in our own country. Why would they want to kill me? What moral and legal justification could there be to cross the ocean to kill me in Aden? Why? What am I guilty of?
6: Ansar fled Yemen after the attack and now lives in exile in Saudi Arabia.
5: So, Naval, if you could talk about what happened with him, why exactly he was targeted, and then at the end of the film where you tried to get one of the the mercenaries, Isaac, to meet with him, he initially agreed to meet with him, but then didn't show up. Explain what happened.
3: So, I mean, you have two sides of Ansaf Mayo's story, right? You have the version that Isaac Gilmore and Dale Comstock tell us, the two mercenaries that I interview in the film. And their story is that they had... You know, Isaac tells us about going to the UAE, pitching this idea that they were going to help with the UAE's counter-terror campaign in uh, southern Yemen. And they were given a pack of cards that had targets. They believed they were terrorists. Um, They were told they were terrorists. Um, And so they pursue what they call the head of the snake, the head of the terrorist organization. Now, this organization is al-Islah. It is one of Yemen's biggest political Organizations. It was founded in 1990. It's a Sunni Islamist movement. It's not a terrorist organization. Um, and Ansaf South was the leader of Al islah in Aden. Um, he was their first target. Uh, Isaac tells us that they were told, you know, if you um, you know pursue this target and if you're successful in assassinating him, uh, we'll then give you the contract to pursue uh, other targets. Um, so they they take they say they do their own intelligence. Uh, they they pursue on South Mayo. It's their first operation. They go to the to the Al um headquarters in Aden. They plant a bomb. There's shooting that happens, and they film this using a drone. You know, as they're doing it. Uh, and they believe in that moment that they were successful, that they'd killed Ansaf Mayo. But then you hear Ansaf Mayo's side of the story. You know, he had, and we also spoke to the people that were with Ansaf Mayo on that day. Um, and they had a gathering, they were talking about music. He left a few minutes earlier before the building was attacked. And the eyewitnesses we spoke to told us they heard Americans outside the building, but they just couldn't believe what they heard. They couldn't believe that this operation involved Americans, so they just kind of let it go. and later, when the news story would come out and the drone footage would be leaked, they'd realize that, in fact, American mercenaries were involved in trying to assassinate Ansaf Mayo. Uh, when I interviewed Isaac Gilmore for the first time in 2020, mm-hmm. he still didn't know that it wasn't a successful operation, that they actually hadn't killed Ansaf Mayo. Um, I knew that because I'd had telephone conversations with us Insaf, and we were planning to do the interview. Um, and so I really wanted him to not only, um, you know, find out that he wasn't successful, that Ansaf was, in fact, still alive. But I wanted him to meet him because he'd built up this idea that he was targeting this awful terrorist. um, And that was not the person that I got to know over the years in Ansaf Mayo. He is a really kind man. He is very kind of balanced in his views, uh, a politician, a member of parliament, someone who has played a role in the peace process in Yemen with the United Nations. and so um, I didn't want Isaac to just hear it from me. I wanted him to meet him for himself. And Ansaf was totally up for it. Um, and Isaac agreed to meet Ansaf. But unfortunately, uh, even though he told me he had gone on his flight, he didn't come to London. And um, Ansaf was stood up.
0: And explain, these U.S. mercenaries, um, where they came from in the military, whether they're Green Berets, etc.?
3: So it was a combination. So, for example, um, Isaac is an ex Navy SEAL. Uh, so is Dale Comstock, but he's also a Green Beret. We also spoke to some French Legionnaires um, off camera. You know, we spoke to a few who had different backgrounds, but didn't want to go on the record. It was only Isaac and Dale that agreed to go on the record. They're
0: paid like a one and a half million dollars a month for their assassination campaign. S-
3: Exactly. I mean, that's what we were told uh, by Isaac. He said that they uh, were—the offer they were given is if you're successful in assassinating Ansaf Mayo, the contract was $1.5 million a month. Uh, And then what we end up finding, um, you know, Isaac and Dale actually left Spear quite early on. Uh, They'd left Yemen at around 2016. And initially, when we first started this investigation, we thought that that's where it ended, that, you know, it wasn't very successful. and and that was it. But then we found this financial document that we were told um, was from the UAE and it uh, had amounts that were um, transferred to pay for Spear Operation Group up until 2020. And so we felt like there was a part of the puzzle missing. We kept looking into what they could have possibly done after 2016. And that's when we found out about the training um, that Spear Operation Group had trained Emirati soldiers in these tactics. And then that went further on with Emirati soldiers then training Yemeni members of the counterterrorism uh, section of the STC that would then carry out assassinations. And what we saw is. Um, as Emiratis trained Yemenis, there was an uptick in assassinations because it was even harder to pinpoint who was responsible for them when it was Yemenis carrying them out because they just blended in uh, when they were, you know, on the streets. It was a lot more difficult for eyewitnesses to pinpoint who was responsible, especially in a place like Aden, which is so chaotic. Uh, you know, it's a war zone right now. Um, it's really difficult to point a finger at who's carrying out these assassinations.
5: Okay, well, let's go to another clip of your report about uh, this one about human rights lawyer Huda Al Sarari, who investigated human rights abuses committed by the UAE backed forces, who then targeted her son.
6: That day, I was at home. Mahsin went out with a group of friends. He was shot and wounded. Mohsin was shot from the front. It wasn't stray bullets or crossfire. It seemed deliberate. After a month in intensive care, Mohsin died. He was 18. Witnesses told the prosecutor that they recognized the gunman as a member of a counter terrorism unit funded by the UAE. But nobody was charged. After his death, I spent a long time at home grieving. After I went back to work, I started receiving death threats again. Haven't you had enough? Does your other son need to be killed before you back down? After that, I left Adan. Who do you think was responsible for killing your son? Those responsible for killing Mohsen and many other young men are those who are in charge of our security at the time, the UAE.
5: So that was a Yemeni human rights lawyer, Khuda al-Sarari, her 18-year-old son. Uh, was killed. Uh, it was—and actually, Naval, we'd like you to clarify whether you were able to conclusively establish that it was uh, the Spear Operations Group that was responsible for his killing, and then talk—we just have a minute—about what kinds of cases are being brought against the uh, Special Operations, the Spear Operations Group, uh, since the group is registered in the U.S. is here where they should be prosecuted?
3: I believe so. I know that there are two human rights organizations who are working on a case against not only a operations group, but those who funded uh, this type of, you know, warfare, basically. Um, but one of the things we struggled with is figuring out the legality of their operations. You know, mercenary warfare is very new. It's a very gray area. It's not black and white when it comes to whether it's illegal or not. Um, but Isaac seemed quite confident in saying that what they did was legal. Um, you know, I did ask him whether Washington knew what they were doing. Um, he said no. But he seemed to believe that the fact that they, working, they were working for a U.S. ally and that these were counterterrorism operations, in his view, meant that what they were doing was legal. And that's why he was quite open with us and happy to talk to us. Um, but, yeah, I don't have a clear answer for that one. I think it will be interesting to see what happens next.
0: Well, we encourage everyone to watch the documentary. Nawal al-Maghafi, we want to thank you so much for being with us. BBC Newsnight international correspondent and filmmaker who's been reporting on the Middle East for over a decade will link to your new investigation called American Mercenaries Hired by UAE to Kill in Yemen. Coming up on this first day of Black History Month, we speak to Dr. Uche Blackstock about Legacy, her new book, about a black physician physician reckoning with racism in medicine. Back in 20 seconds.
1: you شابين so happy to be here. You're so happy to be here. You're so happy to be
0: Every land by 47 Soul. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh.
5: Today, on the first day of Black History Month, we take a look at how racism shapes healthcare in America. A new book by Dr. Uche Blackstock explores systemic inequity in healthcare throughout the history of the United States up to today, as well as her own family history.
0: The book is titled Legacy a Black physician reckons with racism in medicine. Dr. Uche Blackstock is an emergency medicine physician, CEO and founder of Advancing Health Equity, a company that works with healthcare organizations to fight racism and bias in services. She joins us today in New York. Dr. Blackstock, we spoke to you during the pandemic. Um, we're speaking to you again today. The issue of health equity or I should say, inequity, is pervasive throughout the healthcare system in this country. If you can lay it out, but start off by talking about your family, uh, your groundbreaking mother as a black woman physician, you and your twin sister, the remarkable work that you've done, and why you're so motivated to take this issue on.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, you know, I, I really wanted to write this book as a way to helping readers connect the dots about why in 2024 we have the worst racial health inequities um, despite advances in innovation, research and technology. So I use my own personal story, you know, being a second generation black woman physician, which is something that unfortunately is still quite rare. My mother was the original Dr. Blackstock, uh, graduated from Harvard medical school in 1976, but was the first person in her family to go to college and then medical school, um, and then came back and returned to Brooklyn, New York, where she grew up to care for her neighbors uh, and family and practicing what's now known as health equity, organizing community health fairs, connecting uh, residents to to the social services that they that they needed and working with other black physicians and black women physicians um, to do this work in service to their community. And so, I use my mother's story and my story to really emphasize that how, how deeply embedded systemic racism is um, in our country um, in the past and in the present. And to explain why even myself as a black woman with, uh, a, with a college and medical degree from Harvard, I still am five times more likely to die of pregnancy related complications than my white peers. So I, I wanted to use the history to explain why, why there are so few black physicians to Day, and that's because of a report called the Flexner Report that we can talk a little bit more about. But I also wanted to explain how there are deeply rooted myths about, about Black people in this country, uh, essentially biological essentialism, saying that we are, we are different from other people, even though we know race is a social construct. Um, it really is racism through practices and policies that have harmed Black people in this country over the last centuries and have caused us to live shortened lives. Uh, Dr. Blackstock, you mentioned the
5: Abraham Flexner report, and you said it's very important. Could you explain what it is and what impact it had uh, on on, uh, African Americans in medical schools in the early 20th century?
2: So, so absolutely, I thought it was very important for people to understand one of the reasons why there are so few Black physicians in the United States. You know, we're over 13 percent of the U.S. population, but we represent less than six percent of all physicians. And a lot of that has to do with this groundbreaking and actually very harmful report that came out in 1910 that was commissioned by the American Medical Association, which is the oldest and largest organization of physicians and has its own own um, troubling. History history with with bias and racism, American Medical Association and the Carnegie Foundation commissioned Abraham Flexner, who was an education specialist and also an uh, an avid racist. You can can tell from his readings that I've included in the book, he believed black people did not deserve to go to medical school. And if they were in medical school, they were there to help their uh, white peers from getting sick. Um, But anyway, he essentially assessed all 155 medical schools in the United States and Canada and held them up to um, the criteria of the gold standard, Johns Hopkins at the time. And schools that didn't meet that standard were recommended to be closed. And as we know, because of the legacy uh, of racism um, and, and slavery, historically black medical schools did not have the resources or the wealth, or the the endowments, to really to live up to those standards. So this report in 1910 led to the closure of five out of seven of the historically black medical schools, which up to that point had trained about 1,500 students. But a, a report a few years ago actually estimated if those five medical schools had remained open, they would have trained between 25,000 and 35,000 black physicians. And we know most likely they would have been black physicians because Howard and Meharry, which are the medical schools that remained open this day, they still train the most black physicians out of any medical school in the country. But when we think about that number, 25 to 35,000 black physicians, it's a tremendous loss for our communities. If you can think of all of the hundreds of thousands or millions of patients, black patients that could have been cared for, the number of black students and trainees who could have been mentored, and the research in black health that could have been done. So this report in 1910 has had um, a tremendous and profound ripple effect on the worsening of health outcomes in our communities. I wanted to ask you,
0: Dr. Blackstock, about the horror of the remarkable four black women sprinters in the Rio de Janeiro Olympics in 2016. Years later, three of the women faced life-threatening pregnancy complications. One of them, Tori Bowie, died as a result of those complications. Uh, two others, after she died, uh, Tiana Madison and Allison Felix, spoke out about their life threatening situation. You have the cover story of Vanity Fair, Serena Williams talking about what happened in terms of her life-threatening preeclampsia with pregnancy, Uh, Beyonce. um, They have made this famous, but it means so many other black women. Why this Mm -hmm. disproportionate—I think of Erica Garner in our studio so many times, the remarkable young activist daughter of Eric Garner, who was killed by police. She dies after her Second child was born at 27.
2: Yes, yes, and and so you know what is really I think very important for people to understand and what I wanted to do with this book is to really emphasize that you know there is nothing biologically wrong with with black people. There is nothing inherently wrong with us, but there is something very wrong with the the social institutions, not just healthcare within our country that are deeply embedded uh, with bias and racism. So to the point where often when we Black patients interface with the healthcare system and, and health professionals. Often, our concerns are dismissed, ignored, and minimized. Even if we are like Serena Williams, the greatest, one of the greatest athletes of all time, she talks about being ignored by her medical team even after she had a history of a blood clot, telling them she was having similar symptoms and her symptoms progressed. She almost died. But also, I want to also point out that. For, for black people in this country, like socioeconomic status, educational level of attainment profession is not fully protective for us like it is for white people because racism still causes what uh, the, the public health researcher terms weathering. It still causes a chronic wear and tear on our bodies that causes us to prematurely age and makes us more susceptible to illness and disease. And so what I want people to understand when, is when we see when we see disease and illness, in our communities. We see these racial health inequities. They actually are um, uh due to a result of upstream factors like the fact that we live in a capitalist society, the fact that we live in a society where people don't have health care, universal health care, the fact that we live in a society with systemic racism and that illness and disease that we see in black communities and other communities of color, but specifically in black communities, um, is a result of those upstream factors. So one thing I do with this book is I want to recommend to health professionals, academic medical institutions, policymakers to think about health in all policies. So what's important is that, not, you know, not just that health professionals are able to adequately and competently care for Black patients and listen to them and give them equitable care, but also that we understand how housing, how education, how employment, how access to quality health care, that also impacts how healthy our Black communities are.
5: And so Dr. Blackstock if you could talk a little bit about your own uh, experience as a healthcare professional uh, and the fact of course what you just said the 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 US has among the worst if not in the industrialized worst, uh, world the worst uh, maternal mortality rate if you could just say before we end and we'll continue in the second part uh, our conversation with you your own experience uh working yes. as a doctor
2: Yes you know my own experience you know Part of this book is also writing about my experience as a physician and being in environments where I myself, you know, as a black person, as a black woman, you know, in academic medicine, I felt very silenced. I felt muzzled. I was often questioned by my white patients about, you know, where did I go to medical school, Um, you know. I was in environments that were actually quite toxic, racist and sexist. And that is the case for so many of our black physicians. Like, all we want to do is most of us want to work in service to our communities. But I had but I had gotten to the point where, you know, I realized it was too toxic. and I actually left academia. I don't want that to be the case for everyone. Dr.
0: Uche Blackstock, we're going to leave it there. But put the rest of the interview at democracynow.org. Her new book, Legacy. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Shea.